can open your Bibles or navigate over to uh, Exodus chapter 20, however you would like to follow along. Exodus chapter 20 is our text, verses 1 through 26. The topic, from Mount Sinai, the Lord speaks aloud the Ten Commandments. The title of our message, Mountain Do's and Don'ts. Let's pray. How you got it, huh? Father, we do love you and thank you for uh, revealing yourself in so many different ways. And this morning, Lord, as we come to what is extremely familiar, even iconic, Lord, the Ten Commandments, uh, we pray that you would reveal yourself through them and in them in a unique and inspired way to us that would encourage us in the Great Commission to go and tell the world about your love. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It is illegal for donkeys to sleep in bathtubs in the state of Arizona. I just warn you ahead of time for when you're passing through. It is one of those weird laws that remain on the books around the United States. For example, in Arkansas, it is illegal to mispronounce Arkansas. In Iowa, one-armed piano players must perform for free. In Louisiana, you can be fined $500 for sending a pizza order to someone else's house. I love to do that. In Oregon, a lot of you guys want to uh, settle in Oregon to hunt. It is illegal to hunt in a cemetery. In Tennessee, it's illegal to share your Netflix password. In Vermont, and this is something I think should be in California as well, women must obtain written permission from their husbands to wear false teeth. (laughs) What about California? Well, just about every law being passed today is a weird law, but here's one that's on the books. A frog that dies during a frog jumping competition cannot be eaten afterwards. Finally, it's good we are not a congregation in Alabama. In Alabama, it's illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in church. <laughs> this is what the internet is for, people. This is, this is the best use of the internet right here. If weird laws are at one end of the spectrum, the Ten Commandments would be at the wonderful end. Our first ever encounter with the Ten Commandments in the Bible is here in Exodus chapter 20. God gave them to the Israelites so that they might enjoy a relationship with him, with one another, and with all others who were not Jews. Yes, I said enjoy. Obedience to the Ten Commandments would make for a wonderful world. I'll organize my comments then around two points. Number one, you show what a wonderful world it would be by loving God. And number two, you show what a wonderful world it would be by loving others. Let's take a look at loving God in verses 1 through 11. If you're ever asked to summarize what you believe, you might want to consider the following true story. On April 23rd, 1962, theologian Karl Barth spoke at Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago. Many reported that during the Q&A time, a student asked Barth if he could summarize what he believed in a single sentence. As the story goes, he answered by saying, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For Barth, that summarized everything anyone needs to know. Jesus was once asked to summarize what he believed. 
What is the greatest commandment in the law was the specific question. And Jesus answered saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus said everything is summarized in these statements. It stands to reason that if these two commandments summarize all the law, they must also summarize the Ten Commandments, which are part of that law. It's been pointed out by multitudes that the first four of the Ten Commandments are Godward. They have to do with having a relationship with God. The next six commandments are manward. They have to do with relationships between humans. Loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, that's Jesus' summary of the first four of the Ten Commandments. And loving your neighbor as yourself, that's Jesus' summary of the second six of the Ten Commandments. Why is this important? It's important because we generally believe that the Ten Commandments are an oppressive duty that burden all those who try to keep them. Jesus' two commandments are, however, understood to be a delight and the formula for a wonderful life. But since they are, then so are the Ten Commandments that they summarize. And so we're taking a fresh look at these commandments. And so let's start in verse 1, of course. God spoke all these words. And we forget that before God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, He spoke them aloud to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Something to ponder while we're here Adam, Enoch, Noah, Job, Abraham, Jacob, just to pick representatives from uh, Israel's past, from the past before this time, none of these men had the Ten Commandments. Were these men saved? Well, of course they were saved, but it wasn't on the basis of obedience to the Ten Commandments or to any laws, really. Obedience has never been the way of or the precondition to salvation but rather it is a grateful response by those who are saved and they are saved by believing in God. Old Testament and New Testament salvation is by grace through faith, not by works of any kind. I think you guys know that, but it bears repeating. A lot of people think that by keeping the Ten Commandments you get saved or some other laws you get saved. They are the grateful response of a saved people and they tell us how to live one with another. And so verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so you see, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law of Moses, they weren't given in order for mankind to get saved. The Israelites were already in a saving relationship with the Lord. He had redeemed them out of Egypt. They belonged to Him. They were saved. The laws that would now be given would show them how to enjoy that relationship to the fullest. Now that they were no longer slaves in Egypt... This is how they were to walk. He says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the word for gods is Elohim. We talked about this at length a week or two ago. It's a word we've been told is a name for God. Turns out it's not. It's a reference to supernatural beings, or better, it refers to the supernatural dimension or residence of these beings and is therefore used of anyone that inhabits them. It can be used of God or of angels or of demons or of the spirits of the human dead. And that's important because when we read, have no other gods before me, we immediately think of what we call idols, things like automobiles or houses or jobs. I was driving to Lemoore yesterday and I passed a Maserati. My first thought was, why don't I drive a Maserati? 
I'm Italian. I love vehicles. I'm a good driver. I get a discount on the insurance. My second thought was, who drives a Maserati in Lemoore? That kind of a thing. Now, if you're here today and you drive that Maserati, I love you. But I want more than a ride. I want to drive it by myself. But when, when Exodus says you'll have no other gods before me, it's talking about supernatural beings, spirit beings that are powerful and extremely devious. It's not talking about the objects that, they, that represent them. It isn't just that you shouldn't lust after cars. It's that there are real supernatural beings uh, that people can worship in the place of God. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Carved images are what we commonly call idols, but they are that which represent these Elohim, real spiritual entities with destructive powers. And so the idea is you're not to make an image that you worship. And by the way, the, prohibi uh, the prohibition of images for worship did not ban artistic expression. It didn't prevent the production of ornaments used in the worship of the Lord. Later in Exodus, we'll see things like the cherubim and other beautiful artifacts that are formed. And so you can have beauty and you can have art and you can have representations. You just can't worship them. You can't worship the creature, for example, as if it was the creator. And so verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Not all jealousy is bad. We automatically think it is, but it's not. We want God to be jealous over us, to intervene to protect us from the Elohim who would rob and kill and destroy. You dads out there, I know it's Mother's Day, but I don't want to say anything bad about moms. You dads out there, when your daughters get to be marrying age, you're jealous for them, aren't you? You don't want them to marry 99% of the guys they bring home. Doofuses. I mean, come on. Did I raise you to be this stupid? I mean, and so there's a positive jealousy where you care about your children. And so there, we want God to be jealous. And we may not think it at the time, but we want him to intervene when we're headed in the wrong direction and be jealous over us in that godly way. Now, sadly, here we learn that there are those who hate the Lord. Now, hate is a word that can indicate someone is an enemy. So this is similar to saying the person is an enemy of God or at enmity with God, and that simply is another description of a non-believer. All of us were the enemies of God before we got saved. Now, the rest of the wording makes God sound vindictive, as if he personally punishes the children of non-believers. Well, before you draw that conclusion, just think about real life for a moment. So many of these so-called biblical problems evaporate when you just think about it kind of logically and with common sense. The sinful behaviors of parents, do they affect their children and their grandchildren? Of course they do. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that the Center for Disease Control can be trusted. According to them... Child abuse and neglect affect children's health now and later and cost our country a significant amount of money. In one long-term study, as many as 80% of young adults who had been abused met the diagnostic criteria for at least one psychiatric disorder at age 21. These young adults exhibited many problems, including depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and suicide attempts. 
Studies have found abused and neglected children to be at least 25% more likely to experience problems such as delinquency, teen pregnancy, and low academic achievement. Similarly, a longitudinal study found that physically abused children were at greater risk of being arrested as juveniles, being a teen parent, and they were less likely to graduate from high school. A parent's adultery, substance abuse, other dysfunctional behavior establishes a pattern that children tend to model. They are destructive for future generations. The result can be a repetition of their parents' emotional brokenness, leading to adverse responses down through the ages. And so let's not blame God for the consequences of people being his enemy and indulging in sin and it having consequences on their children. You know, years ago, I've been in the ministry long enough now to have some perspective and see things change. Years ago, Christian couples that wanted to get a divorce or were having problems and were talking about divorce, if I couldn't solve their situation any other way, I would play the child card. I would bring out their children and I'd say, this is going to hurt your children. Do you want to hurt your children? And sometimes they would say, well, our fighting all the time is not good for our children. I would say the solution then is to not fight all the time. It isn't to get a divorce. It's to figure out the underlying problem. And many times, those couples would break down. They would say, you know what? We love our children more than we love ourselves. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to try and make this work. I have to tell you, that doesn't really work anymore. People give me a blank stare when I talk about their children, and they say, well, I've read that my kids will be fine. In fact, they might even be better off. I don't know what else to say after that. It's, it's really sad the way the world has gone. And so this, God, you know, he's not trying to destroy families for generations to come because people don't believe in him. Because people don't believe in them, they are destroying their own family for generations to come. Here's what God wants to do in verse six. Show mercy to thousands, to love those who love me and keep my commandments. The thousands re relates not to the number of people, but to the generations, thousands of generations. It's God's way of saying he intends to be merciful to believers both now and throughout their generations on the earth. doesn't mean a believer won't have trials or troubles. It means that in them God has mercy and comfort and help. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This sounds pretty simple, but commentators are all over the map on this one, and you really can't get a handle on it. One commentary says this, this commandment does not refer to blasphemy or foul language. It is intended to prevent the exploitation of the name of Yahweh for magical purposes or hexing. Another commentator says this means to swear by God's name that a false statement is actually true. It also includes profanity, cursing oaths or swearing to a promise and failing to fulfill it. Another commentator says, strictly speaking, this commandment applies to perjury during a legal proceeding and not to speech in general. And so while you're scratching your heads, here's an easy way of understanding this. I think it's as simple as remembering that God is a person with whom you are in a relationship. That being true, you're not going to use his name as if it were some sort of magic power to get what you want. When you talk, if I were to talk to my wife, I don't go, Pam, 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 Pam. Oh, Pam, 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 Pam. What are we having for dinner? And yet we do things that we, we act like God's name is some magic potion. And we certainly won't refer to him flippantly or as a curse word. 
what, what is it using Jesus' name and God's name as a curse word? People don't say, oh, Buddha. You know, the, you hit your hand with the hammer. You don't go, oh, Muhammad. It's crazy. And so, but if God is a real person, which he is, and we know that, well, of course we're not going to use his name in vain, in vain ways as a vanity. And so it's a very simple kind of a thing, really. Verses 8 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, not your cattle, not your stranger who is within your gates. It's interesting the stranger is below cattle. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Before I say anything else, let me point out something regarding those who insist we keep the Sabbath. I don't know any Sabbatarian who puts this commandment to its full intention by also demanding we maintain a six-day work week. Because it says, in fact, it's got its own verse, verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. It doesn't say if you can work four tens that you're done and you get a three-day weekend. It says that you should work six days a week and have one day a week off. I guess it may sound flippant, but it's not. You can't take one part of it and say that applies verbatim, uh, but the rest of it, don't worry about that. Obviously, you don't have to work for six days. That's not important. Well, of course it is. One more quick observation. The Sabbath command was to do no work on the Sabbath day. Believe it or not, nowhere in the Bible does the Sabbath day, is it a command to be the day of worship? It makes sense it would be a day of worship because you're off that day, but nowhere does the Bible actually say you should worship on the Sabbath. Should a Christian in this church age keep the Sabbath? The answer is yes and no. First, the answer is no. The Jews in leadership in the early church established that Gentiles were not required to keep things like the Sabbath. The early church council in Jerusalem, that was the gist of it. The Judaizing uh, teachers were saying in order for a Gentile to be a Christian, he must keep certain of the laws of Moses, things like circumcision, etc. And the church council, which was all Jewish, Jewish believers, they got together and they said, yeah, no, that's not true. They just need to not offend Jews. They're not under the law. They never were. They never will be. And so Gentiles not required to keep the Sabbath. The Apostle Paul said very clearly in Colossians, let no one judge you in food and drink regarding a festival, a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, the substances of Christ. One whole book of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, was written to tell Jewish believers to not return to things like the Sabbath in order to avoid persecution and potential martyrdom because we have something that is superior to the Sabbath. At the same time, we do keep the Sabbath. We keep it as it was intended. It is a continuous spiritual rest in the Lord. When you become a Christian, you enter into rest, spiritually speaking, and thereby keep the Sabbath. I mentioned the book of Hebrews. The writer exhorts his readers to enter to the Sabbath, rest provided by Jesus. He wasn't talking about a certain 24-hour day of the week. He was talking about walking in the power of the Spirit every day and enjoying spiritual rest 24-7. 
One of God's purposes for the nation of Israel was that they show him to Gentile nations. They were to be evangelistic. He didn't give them these four or any of the Ten Commandments to have them fail. God didn't say, here's what I'd like you to do, but I got you. You can't do any of these. You're going to fail miserably in these. Now, they may not have had the Holy Spirit indwelling them. That's a blessing that we have in the church age. But the Holy Spirit was certainly at work among them, and they could have loved God with all their hearts and minds and souls. Some Jews did. If I mention the prophets or Ezra or Nehemiah or later on someone like David, you would say, well, yeah, those are people who obviously were saved and they loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, we have the Spirit indwelling us, empowering us. How much more can we obey Jesus who said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? The first four of the Ten Commandments simply expand on this. In one sense, they reveal what it looks like when you are loving God with everything you've got. When what you believe impacts your behavior, you show others the joy of knowing God. You're at rest spiritually. You talk to God and of God as if he were a real person that you're in a relationship with. Your life is dominated by a healthy desire to serve him instead of all lesser people and things. And no one and nothing interferes with a worldview that you are on your way home to heaven, that you're a pilgrim on the earth whose gaze is fixed upon the Lord. It's a wonderful life to be in love with the Lord. And we are to show that to those that are still his enemies. Now, in verses 12 through 26, you show what a wonderful world it would be by loving others. We know that ancient Egypt had a code of sophisticated laws, but none of them have survived. We blame papyrus because it's not very sturdy. And so there's very little that we know about the exact laws of Egypt. Researchers guess at the laws by reading other documents that have survived that mention legal matters. And so one such researcher writes, Egyptian law was based on a common sense view of right and wrong. So these guys would have been no use in California. Uh, Based on the concept of truth, order, and justice in the universe, this concept allowed that everyone, with the exception of slaves, should be treated as equals. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for centuries. They were familiar with the Egyptian law code, which gave them no protection. Now they were several million people being established as a nation under God. How were they supposed to relate to each other? The common sense way that the Egyptians did, what kind of laws should they adopt? That's the idea here. And so God gives these next six commandments to establish how... And Jesus said they could be summed up by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's take a look at them. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Oh, look, Moses is wishing you ladies a happy Mother's Day. (laughs) So that concludes the Mother's Day portion of our message. (laughs) This command, if you, it it does, by the way. Uh, This command, if you think about it, promotes the sanctity of human life. The elder members of their nation were to be honored, not ignored, not abused, of course, not eliminated. And so it promotes sanctity of life. It isn't a promise for a longer lifespan either. It's promising success in the promised land for honoring life. And then verse 13, you shall not murder. One commentator had this to say about the specific word for murder. Careful appraisal of the word Moses used suggests a broad translation of to kill or slay 
but denoting the taking of life under a legal system where he would have to answer to the stipulations of a legal code, no matter whether he killed intentionally or unintentionally. By this command, people would be reminded and exhorted to strive after carefulness in the affairs of life so that on the person-to-person level, no one would die by their hand. Uh, I mention that because a lot of times I've heard and read and probably taught that the specific word for murder means murder and not any other form of killing. And it solves some, you know, sticky problems, uh, you know, theologically for us. But uh, this person who tends to know the language better than others says, no, the word for murder means just the intentional or unintentional taking of life, uh, both of which have consequences. And so actually that makes it more uh, important. As an aside, those of you who do extra teaching or extra studying, you like to read commentaries or uh, things outside of uh, the Bible itself, be careful when somebody you're reading along and say, this word means this, and this is the post-participle transitive secondary verb tense, and it can only mean this. Because there's plenty of experts in languages that say, yeah, no, that's not really true. And we don't want to base our entire theology or belief system on one word and what it might mean. Uh, And so this word, it, it means murder, but it can also mean manslaughter. But again, this is a promotion of the sanctity of all human life by holding accountable those who take it, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Now, this isn't the place to take a lot of time on this, but I'll mention that this command does not prohibit capital punishment. In fact, by promoting the sanctity of all human life, it recommends and demands capital punishment for certain behaviors, as we will see later in God's law. If you hold to the sanctity of all human life as a society, capital punishment is an important deterrent, and we need it. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. This commandment applies to both men and women, obviously. It sanctifies the marriage relationship as established in the Garden of Eden. Monogamous, heterosexual, to last as long as both shall live. Later in Leviticus chapter 20, we're going to read that the penalty for adultery was death. It's a pretty serious crime with a pretty serious penalty. Now, this command contains the basis for regarding all human sexuality. If biblical marriage is to be protected, then by extension, things like polygamy and homosexuality are prohibited. All exploitation of another person, uh, such as in the sex trade, is unlawful and prohibited. Respect for biblical marriage seems to be an all-time low. In society, that's to be expected but not in the church. We need to get it together. I know people argue about the statistics, you know, that for years people would say, oh, there's just as much divorce in the church as outside the church, and now they've proven that that's not exactly true. But I'll tell you what, there's just way too much divorce and sin in the church when it comes to marriage. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that (laughs) we should return to the place where adultery's punishment is murder, or is capital punishment, but... Most, mostly we don't take these things seriously anymore as a church in general or the church at large. And we're definitely being desensitized by the culture around us. Let's hold to a high uh, standard of Christian marriage. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Behind this is the concept of private property. There can be no stealing if there's no private ownership. The society God was establishing, therefore, was not communal is based on private ownership. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. William MacDonald writes, 
This commandment forbids damaging the character of another person by making statements which are not true and thus possibly causing him to be punished or even executed. It teaches respect for a person's reputation. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is in your, uh, that is your neighbor's, including his Maserati. It was so beautiful, though. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> this commandment passes from acts to thoughts. Perhaps we're to understand from it that all the Ten Commandments involve more than the acts themselves. They under, uh, involve our thoughts. Which leads me to ask, did God intend for the Israelites to obey these commandments? And the answer is, of course he did. This is how they were going to function as a society. Now, it's true that no one can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly, and it's true that we break them in our hearts. Jesus' famous statement that anger is murder in the heart and that looking upon a person with lust is adultery established the sin in our hearts. And so, when I say we're to keep the Ten Commandments, it's not in the sense that we keep them to be made perfect or to be saved. It's not in the sense that we could ever perfectly keep them or achieve sinfulness, uh, sinlessness in this life. But obviously, we're not to go around murdering people. And, and laws are the basis of our society. We expect non-believers to keep the law, do no murder, right? So we can't say, well, nobody can keep these laws. I hope so. I don't want to be murdered. True, when I drive to Los Angeles, I want to murder everybody on the freeway. <laughs> I become a serial killer in Los Angeles. But I don't actually do it. I don't run those people off the road. My dad, I know it's Mother's Day, but my gosh, my poor dad. <laughs> when I would drive, <laughs> God forbid somebody would cut us off. Oh, man, speed up. Get in front of the guy. Cut him off. Put your brakes on. It was a horror story. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, if you wanted to see sin in the heart coming forward, <laughs> murdering people like left and right, you know? So anyway, so I understand that. But we are supposed to keep these laws. I might want to do these things and thus see my sin, but I understand I can choose to not do them even before I'm a believer. And so the Ten Commandments are wonderful laws for people to live by. They promote an orderly, godly society in which life is sacred and individual rights are taken into account, and they simultaneously show us our initial and continuing need for God in that we can never perfectly keep them either outwardly or inwardly. Verse 18, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we'll listen. Don't let God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, don't fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near in the thick darkness where God was. And so this was a test. God was testing them to see if they understood the seriousness of obedience, and they weren't supposed to be afraid of God, but afraid with God in the sense that uh, they respected him in a way that would keep them from sinning. And so this was a reverential fear, not just a quaking. God thought it was possible for the Israelites to not sin 
I'm not sure if I ever understood that before now. Uh, really understood that, that God, hey, so here's a great way to live now that I've redeemed you. And, and you're not gonna be able to keep it perfectly. That's why there are consequences. And in your heart, it's gonna show you your continuing need for me. But this, if you guys, you approximate this and you're gonna have quite the society. We can be so focused on how God's law ultimately condemns us as sinners and thereby drives us to the cross that we forget we are still called upon to obey them. So if I'm witnessing to somebody, and and a lot of times we like to use the law to bring them to Christ, we say, hey, have you ever murdered anybody? No. Have you ever thought about, have you ever been angry in your heart towards somebody? Well, of course. Well, then you've actually already murdered them. You've broken the commandment, and so you need God. Wow, that's great. Praise the Lord, I understand that. If the person doesn't get saved, then you don't say, well, go ahead, murder anybody you want. Because that's the purpose of the law is to show you your sin. You might as well go around murdering people. No, we still understand that murder is wrong and that a person can choose to not murder another person. You've heard this, and it's true. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in some form in the New Testament, and Christians are expected to obey them in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. What do you think is the only commandment not repeated? The Sabbath commandment. It's not repeated anywhere. Unless you count entering into a permanent spiritual rest, which has nothing to do with what day you worship. And so the bottom line is, love your neighbor as yourself, and you keep these six commandments. Think about it. If I'm loving my neighbor as myself, I'm not gonna steal anything. I'm not gonna commit adultery I'm not gonna covet anything because I don't want that to happen to me. And so it's a perfect summary of the six commandments. What does loving your neighbor really look like? Looks like you hold to the sanctity of human life. It looks like you honor biblical marriage and biblical sexuality. It looks like you respect property rights. It looks like you respect the reputation of others. And it looks like you realize you have a fatal spiritual heart ailment that requires God to justify you by grace to save you and then to go on sanctifying you. This is what Israel was supposed to show to the Gentile world. It is what we can show to the non-believing world. Now, it's unlikely to happen, but if someone comes up to you and asks you to summarize what you believe, break out singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's really nothing more profound than that. It's a great summary of what the Bible teaches. But every day, without being asked, Realize that as a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, you're capable of loving God with your heart, soul, and mind, and of loving your neighbor as yourself. When you thus yield to Jesus, you show what a wonderful world this could be. Let's pray.